Hello, and welcome to NACLA Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. The latest issue of the NACLA Report is now available online for digital subscribers and soon to be mailed out. This issue, Black Lives Matter Around the Region, seeks to situate the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States within a larger hemispheric trend of Afro-Latinx activism. Today, I'm speaking with Julia Buxton, Dean of the School of Public Policy at Central European University in Hungary. Hi, Julia. How are you? Hello, Helen. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. So I thought we could start with just a little bit about yourself, um, what you do in your work, and, and what kind of brought you to writing this article on Venezuela for the NACLA report. Well, I'm a Latin Americanist by background. I have a particular interest in the uh, impacts of counter-narcotics policies on the region. Um, but I've also worked for a long time on Venezuela. I did my PhD on Venezuelan politics in the mid-1990s. Um, and at that point, we were seeing the emergence of Hugo Chavez and in, obviously working on Hugo Chavez and then his election in 1998 and following all through in the 2000s has meant that I've really remained quite addicted to uh, to Venezuela. Your article is largely about um, the kind of current state of the opposition to the inheritors of the Chavez government. Uh, the opposition, you say, just doesn't really have much of a coherent strategy um, in terms of tactics, but also in terms of, of what they're articulating to the population. I wonder, do you think it's possible that they will come around with either more coherent tactics or just a message, whether or not that message is genuine? Well, I think what was really interesting about uh, the Maduro presidency is that it's been incredibly fragile. Um, it's inherited many problems from President Chavez, and it's compounded many of these without addressing some of the fundamental structural problems in the economy and also in the model of 21st century socialism that they're seeking to build. But what's been quite extraordinary is that there has been this ongoing hardcore of loyalism around the Maduro government, around the ideals of Chavismo. And the opposition has been fundamentally unable to, to break this loyalty. And I never quite understood, given the incredible economic difficulties that Venezuela is facing, how Maduro could have retained this level of support until in my own country we had Brexit and the referendum process. Um, and the political debates around Brexit at the time was very much skewed away from the potentially damaging economic costs of our coming out of the EU with people instead more focused on reclaiming sovereignty. So the notion of us being sovereign pervaded far and wide over the economic consequences. And so I kind of am very interested in the notion that people are willing to incur economic cost if fundamental principles they hold to um, are seen to be maintained by a government. So the way I understand Maduro is very much that even though Maduro is offering very, very, very little to the hardcore of Chavista supporters, there is still the view that if economic times become better in Venezuela, then it is the poorer sectors, the PSUV loyalists, loyalists who will be the beneficiaries. And the opposition have simply failed to understand that. The big problem we have with the opposition is that they are, as the article sets out, deeply, deeply divided. And whether over the coming weeks and months they're able to 
galvanize a modest sense of unity and cohesion as they still push and try and remove Maduro, it's simply not going to be sustainable. We have no idea over who any future presidential candidate would be, over what a policy platform would be. And absolutely fundamental to the opposition's failure is they're giving no guarantees to people as to the future. So if you're a hardcore Chavista or even a wavering Chavista or the so-called Nini, you have very, very little incentive to align yourself with an opposition movement that you have no idea what it represents. It's hard not to draw parallels uh, between the Democratic and Republican parties up here in the United States, particularly in terms of campaign promises, which neither candidate uh, this past election cycle seemed hesitant to make. Donald Trump, for example, said many times that he would not uh, cut social welfare like Social Security, Medicare. Um, and then the Republican Party proceeded to draft a health care bill that did exactly that. I think that's uh, it's probably very much like the situation in the Republican Party in the United States, in which we're not simply talking about one notion of what constitutes right wing politics or even moderate center right politics. Mm-hmm. This is this is huge cleavages that exist um, on the on the right of the ideological spectrum. I mean, obviously, we have cleavages on the left and those are very well known and, and historically established. But what we're seeing currently, not just in Venezuela, but in many other countries of the world, is a conflict between right within right wing political ideologies. And I think maybe what we're seeing in Venezuela, quite similar to what we're seeing in the United States, is a kind of, you know, very traditional, um, very paternal form of conservatism, but also a more radical neoliberalism shade and also perhaps an even more libertarian shade. Now, the challenge for the Venezuelan opposition right now, which does also include organizations from the social democratic, from the center left. I mean, this is a very broad alliance which in turn explains its deep, deep problems in trying to develop a coherence agenda, um, is that fundamentally there is no capacity to articulate an economic policy because they are still so divided over it. Do they restructure the debt? Do they go to the IMF? Who will be external trade partners? What on earth are they going to do about the catastrophic economic situation? And there's simply no consensus around what that will be. There's no conviction that they would be able to deal with the debt, even if it is ideologically distinct from Maduro and his administration. The day-to-day reality of an opposition-led government is hypothetically just the same instability. Um, so USAID, you say, is had been justifying its uh, financial support of opposition activities um, as democracy promotion, which is a curious turn of phrase. And I wonder... Um, I wonder what we what we kind of see the conventional um, institutional U.S. perspective being on the current instability and and whether it's really just advantageous for the U.S. that Venezuela continue to be unstable and kind of in a in an indeterminate uh, spiral. Well, I think what we've seen since the two um, thousands is the early two thousands is that it well it wasn't just the you know USAID it was also the NED the National Endowment for Democracy right. various other organisations but um, were channeling finances to the opposition under the the kind of label as you say of democracy promotion um, supporting then student youth organisations and training and offering training programmes and. And the challenge, the problem that this created is that when you provide external financial democracy assistance, any party that receives that money or organization, they look externally to their donors and funders to justify their actions. 
What they don't do is look internally to building a core support base through which they lobby and raise funds and build grassroots organizations. So the problem with the U.S. democracy's support for the Venezuelan opposition is that it made them very, very lazy. It made them look to the north rather than looking to within Venezuela um, to uh, for accountability. Now, this has really, I think, been quite a common theme of the opposition. Even though Primero Justicia did become slightly more sophisticated in understanding the need to mobilize internally, particularly after 2006, and did really try and push the opposition down an electoral path, for other sections of the opposition, and particularly here organizations such as Voluntad Popular, the emphasis has been on, again, raising external attention to the situation in Venezuela. So we have these constant delegations to Europe, constant delegations to other Latin American countries, which are perceived to be sympathetic to the opposition in Venezuela. And again, I just think that this energy would be better expended articulating these messages of the need for political change to the Venezuelan electorate, because it really is the Venezuelan electorate that will have to legitimize any process of political shift in Venezuela. The Venezuelan opposition can't be constantly looking to to Peru or to Brazil or to Mexico or now to the government in Argentina um, as its support base. And that's the real challenge that the opposition really does have. Based on the optics sitting in the United States and watching this happen, it's hard not to view this as popular protest against an administration whose behavior is getting increasingly repressive. There's also um, a narrative building of, of the Maduro government trying to shut down newspapers that are critical of the government. And uh, and coming from the other side, there's, um, there's the accusations that the opposition um, forces are orchestrating these commodity shortages um, to further destabilize the, the legitimacy of the Maduro presidency. Uh, it, it seems like both sides would like to say the man in the smoky room who is controlling this this slow explosion is is from the other side. Um, and how much of that is is just uh, kind of manipulating the optics and how much of it is the truth is that both sides are really kind of engaged in this sort of um, tinkering and, and, and repressive activity. I think there is a violent contestation over the narrative of internal political developments within Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Venezuela, as I'm sure you're aware, is is one of the most violent countries in the world with one of the highest homicide rates. This is a country which carries a high level of weaponization, high level of armaments, in which there has been an absolutely insufficient process of disarming and demilitarizing the population, paramilitary groups, um, and of having an effective training for the Venezuelan police. At the same time, that's in a context of, as we've seen in the US, as we've seen in other countries, in Mexico, even to an extent in the UK, where the military and police and security sector do operate with a high level of impunity in which we are seeing greater examples of effectively state violence against local populations. But if we really are committed to ensuring that Venezuela moves towards a peaceful outcome to its absolutely catastrophic political crisis, then there is no alternative but to negotiate this process of change. Now, what's been really quite troubling is that we've obviously seen very recently the Organization of American States pushing for regime change, as it were, in Venezuela, um, in calling for immediate elections. 
We've seen the same thing you were asking before about what's the position of the current US administration. Well, it seems to be rather way turned away from what's going on in Latin America. Uh, we had President Trump who had his tweet with uh, Lilian Tintori. Marco Rubio the other day has kind of filled a, a vacuum of US initiative around Venezuela um, by launching a series of threats against certain countries which had wanted to support Venezuela in this OAS resolution that was trying to expel the country from the Democratic Charter. Now, unless we have peaceful negotiations in the country, we are looking, in my opinion, at violence and bloodshed in the country for years to come. Calling for an immediate election without internal stabilization and agreement is only going to lead to a process of political change in which the Maduro administration, sections of the PSUV and organizations loyal to the government will feel cheated and that this has been an illegitimate process. And if these factions believe that the only way they can continue to, to support the Bolivarian revolution is through conflict, is through political, even street mobilization, then we're not going to see the stabilization that the country desperately needs. Now, the problem with working on Venezuela is that the debate is so deeply, deeply polarized. There is the argument that in, in carrying out negotiations, this is helping the Maduro government stay in power. I don't see it that way. I see it as the only way through which Venezuela can move to long term peace and stability, because immediate regime change is not going to take Venezuela into a bright utopian future. What I sense, though, is that the opposition doesn't really care about the utopian future or the possibility of that. And, and this is why negotiation is sort of a moot point for them. It's really about having power. And, and that I certainly don't want to come to the defense of the Maduro government. That seems to kind of be the case there as well, although they do kind of seem to, to be more willing to approach negotiation. But that said, I mean, it seems without stabilizing the economy, there's really not very much to be gained from controlling the, the, the levers of government? Well, it, it, it very much depends, obviously, on what's the, the nature and shape of the opposition. So far, the face of the opposition has been overwhelmingly male. It's been overwhelmingly white. Um, it's been people who have been associated with um, the opposition for many years um, and the historical political parties before the Chavista period. Currently, it's an opposition, probably with the exception of a few high profile women, um, which really doesn't present itself in much the same way with what we see with the, the political developments in Brazil. That doesn't present itself as modern, forward looking, inclusivist. I mean, this is a very, very narrow agenda led by a very small elite. And this is the concern about ongoing um, stabilization in the country. Now, the challenge is, as you said, what can the opposition um, do if they actually take power in Venezuela? Well, again, given the diversity of perspectives within the opposition, there are multiple options on the table. But I strongly expect that there will be efforts to move towards a debt renegotiation, um, efforts to secure agreement with future creditors over lending. There will have to be a process of privatization. That's inevitable. Probably a shift on the catastrophically low and completely unacceptable subsidy that there is on domestic fuel, which really is the most regressive, regressive subsidy imaginable in Venezuela and quite astonishing that it's been retained by the government in the form that it has. Um, and there'll have to be shifts on the price controls and on the exchange control. But the issue is going to be who bears the cost of those shifts. 
So if we have major processes as a privatisation, what will happen to those workers in nationalised industries? If we do have the lifting of price controls, how will access to basic goods be secured? Now, the argument from the right would be that once price controls have shifted, there will be a greater incentive to supply and this will bring prices down. But there will be an incredibly tough first couple of months, if not years. And again, it goes back to the question of who will pay the price of these shifts. And in the political context of those very difficult economic decisions that are going to be made, if you have a deeply aggrieved, deeply disaffected former PSUV in the position of being an an opposition movement, um, then we're going to see a constant cycle of protests and mobilisation against any initiatives that the opposition, uh, that the new government would want to bring in. So the decisions that the opposition would take if they come to power would in turn, to my mind, just spark a new cycle of violence, a new cycle of conflict and polarisation, unless there is a minimal agreement around what steps need to be taken. It's for the whole of the country of Venezuela to come together around what needs to be done. This cannot be imposed from the outside and it cannot be determined by a narrow elite. Yeah. So this issue of the NACLA report is called Black Lives Matter across the hemisphere. And in it, we're kind of seeking to situate um, the United States Black Lives Matter movement within a larger hemispheric discourse on uh, the rights of Afro-Latinexes. And uh, I'm just kind of wondering, I mean, so Afro-Venezuelans, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, they represent almost half of the population of Venezuela, no? I'm, I mean, I'm not entirely sure on the demographics of that. I So I know that there is a sizable population of Afro-Venezuelans. Oh, um, it's, it's, it's certainly sizable. Okay, let's see. I'm reading a statement from Francisco Tovar, who's an activist for the rights of Afro-descendants um, and the executive director of the Institute of African Diaspora Studies. Okay, so there's there's a there's debate as to who qualifies as Afro-Venezuelan, which is not surprising, and as to how many of them there are. What they do represent is a sizable population in the prisons of Venezuela. Um, there are calls on the part of Afro-descended Venezuelans um, to make reparations. There's uh, for for slavery. Um, we've just passed the kind of 160. 163 year marks for since abolition in Venezuela. So I'm, I'm curious in, in this kind of climate, um, it seems that the, that advocating for the rights of Afro Venezuelans sort of falls to, to the wayside. Um, it does seem like the kind of elitist discourse that's going on is, is kind of rooted. I mean, you said the face of this opposition movement is, is overwhelmingly white. And so the the racial component of this is is vague to me, um, but it is clearly there. And Afro-Venezuelans have this cohesive movement. They do have concrete demands. So I just wonder what your thoughts are on on the kind of open racism of the opposition and how Afro-Venezuelans can be expected to kind of fall into this discussion. Okay, well, a couple of the the points that you make there, which I just want to pick up on, firstly relates to the situation in Venezuelan prisons. Um, And as you note there, not just in Venezuela, but also obviously in the United States, which is, you know, the most catastrophic example, really, of the the racialization um, of the of the penal system. The prison system in Venezuela is absolutely shocking. And it's not a situation which is unique to Venezuela. It's really in many, many countries of Latin and Central America. Um, There is a 
hemispheric crisis of criminal justice systems. And in the Venezuelan case, I would link this more broadly to the failure of the Chavez and subsequently the Maduro government um, to pay any attention to investing and training and building a criminal justice framework which was fundamentally hinged around the rule of law. So there are serious, serious questions to be answered by the current government as to its failure to develop a prison system which is fair and just and equitable and in which we don't see major problems of pretrial detention and violence in prisons. The most dangerous place to be in Venezuela is in prison. Now, in turn, the opposition do have some responsibility for not coming to the table when the government has tried to develop national security plans and inevitably there's arguments about, well, the government wasn't being wholly Um, honest in its invitation to the opposition to join in development of a national security plan. But my point is here that the government and its opponents have repeatedly failed to come to a minimum consensus over issues around crime, over issues like political change, that is to the benefit of all Venezuelans. And this is the greatest tragedy of the country, is this neglect of the primary concern of Venezuelans. Now, in terms of the, the racial dynamics here, there was a a remarkable and very famous book on Venezuela called Café con Leche um, by an anthropologist, Winthrop, which looked at Venezuela and argued at the time that it was one of the most racially diverse, mixed, integrated societies of Latin America, um, which was arguably the case. But clearly there was a, a bifurcation over where power and wealth in Venezuela held, was held. Now, to some extent, the Chavez and Maduro government did seek to, to promote um, Afro-Venezuelan along with indigenous rights and mobilization and representation. But this has, as you said, really fallen down the government's agenda. Now, the key thing for me is that it's not only issues around race um, that the government has completely neglected. There has been complete neglect of, for example, Um, the promotion of LGBT rights in Venezuela. I wrote an article for the Latin America Bureau about how Venezuela is so far behind the regional tide. Um, Admittedly, there is some current regress, but Latin America has been at the forefront of promoting LGBT rights. When you look at the situation in Argentina, Colombia, Brazil, and Venezuela is decades behind in these debates. And similarly around women's rights, I mean, one of the the highest causes of mortality amongst women in Venezuela um, is unsafe abortions. This is a catastrophic situation. It's been a complete neglect of these rights-based issues. So uh, I found the answer to our demographic problem earlier. The Venezuelan government has not collected demographic information, census information on its Afro-Venezuelan population since 1920, which is why estimates of the proportion of the population range between, it looks like, 7 and 60% of the population. So first I was reading from from an Afro-Venezuelan activist who claimed 54%, and we have conservative sources saying around 5%. Um, So that's... uh, perhaps the, the the most the driest example of uh institutionalized racism i, I can produce um but you were also talking about the male face of this opposition movement and um the the lack of progress on lgbtqi rights and uh female reproductive rights um very concerning Again, I'm 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 tempted to fall into the analysis that because the economy and the political situation in Venezuela is so unstable, these 
concerns, which are also really crucial and and life or death are going to go unanswered, um, even if a negotiation does take place, because they don't fall at the top of the list of concerns of the people who will be at the negotiating table. Do do you feel as though Afro-Venezuelans, women, uh, and the indigenous people or uh, or LGBTQI actors are at all represented in the Maduro administration? I think that the um, the representation of these different groups has really slipped down the agenda from an initially more positive promotion of these these different identities and different interests at the start of the Chavista administration. But I think that what's happened now is that um, identification and and um, prominence within the Maduro administration is determined more by loyalty to Maduro rather than the specific promotion of any individual ideologies or interests or, or identities. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I do completely agree with the point that you make that right now, given the chronic economic situation, these issues around reproductive rights, LGBTQI rights, around race um, are simply not the top of the agenda. My argument is they've not been at the top of the agenda for, you know, nearly two decades of the Bolivarian revolution. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really problematic is that the opposition and the government have locked Venezuela into a frozen conflict around which the stakes are uh, discussions about constitutionality and about legitimacy. And this has really, you know, kind of left the government and the opposition pivoting around these, you know, high meta debates um, around the nature of authority and, and and whether the government has legitimacy. And as I was saying before, all of these other issues that either matter to Venezuelans as a general population, crime, violence, insecurity, unemployment, all of these issues are just completely neglected. Firstly, by the opposition, which with its majority control of the National Assembly has really done nothing to address any of these concerns. I mean, there has been food and medicine legislation, but the overall preoccupation of the opposition was on an amnesty bill um, for political prisoners in Venezuela. And this preoccupied the opposition for an inconceivable amount of time. Now, what really has to be kind of emphasized here is that if the opposition had a rights-based agenda, then issues around representation, around um, women's reproductive rights, these would be at the top of any rights-based agenda. Now, for the for the Venezuelan government itself, for the Maduro and Chavez administrations, what I find particularly troubling is that where we did see some of these advances um, around, for example, LGBTQI, these were, you know, being carried out by regional allies and regional neighbors of Venezuela. They were being carried out by right-wing governments, as in Colombia. And yet Venezuela, and also, for example, Bolivia, has really remained behind the tide on some of these more fundamental rights questions. And what I find deeply problematic is the idea that, given a certain crisis, we can't expect these fundamental rights of people to be a priority. I think they have to be a priority because if they're not, we're not going to create democratic, inclusivist societies. And whether this is around race, sexuality or gender issues, then these have to be at the top of every political agenda for the country. Because otherwise, we're simply going to remain locked in this interminable conflict, which is overwhelmingly dominated um, by men and in the case of the opposition by white men. 
Well said. I'm with you. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a lesson to be drawn um, for the left in the United States as, and elsewhere. There's there's been a lot of talk of you know we can't we can't have infighting because we have a we have a a greater evil to to reckon with right now. And I think what you're expressing in in my mind is really just kind of the the fundamental principles of intersectionality of recognizing the fact that this is not ever just about class, just about race, just about gender, just about economic approaches. It's always about all of those things. And we have to find a way to kind of cohere each of these each of these um incredibly crucial and life or death policy problems um into into a larger direction uh for the left in general in the United States um and elsewhere i would before we wrap just like to briefly discuss your situation um in hungary uh with the central european university uh and what's going on there uh it is out of the normal purview of Nakla's uh, journalism, but I think that the uh, the current situation is worth talking about, particularly seeing as you are a scholar of Latin America uh, in quite a situation. Well, I appreciate the the opportunity to to discuss this because it uh, really is in the European context a a quite shocking development. Um, this is the proposal by the government of um, Prime Minister Viktor Orbán to close down Central European University. And when I say close down, this has been a clearly targeted move against the university, um, largely because it was founded uh, by George Soros, whose uh, Soros Foundation provides a huge amount of uh, scholarships to, to our students. And we have been enormously delighted in the course of four days, because this was a very surgically precise um, piece of legislation that the Orban government introduced with very little notice. Um, and what this emphasizes is that any foreign university operating in Hungary, um, essentially, if it's a European university, this isn't problematic as long as the university has a, a campus in its home country. CEU is an American university. Um, we are registered with the Mid-States Board. We offer degree, our degrees um, graduate as an American degree program. Um, so this has been clearly targeted at us because the legislation proposes that there will not be the opportunity to establish universities in Hungary um, if they have a North American background. It specifically emphasizes only European. So as I said, it's been politically targeted. What more specifically seems to be particularly problematic for the Hungarian government is that we teach in the university around issues of drug policy reform, about civil liberties, about human rights um, and about women's rights and refugee rights. Now, the problem is that this is completely going against a highly xenophobic, reactionary, um, ideological agenda of the Orban government. Um, the, the family um, is really the, the nucleus of the Hungarian constitution. So anything which is seen to interfere with the private rights of the family or, you know, condemnation of domestic violence, of abortion rights, these kinds of things, um, support for abortion rights, sorry, is seen to be highly contentious. We have the World um, Families Congress arriving in Budapest in a couple of weeks. Again, a very, very conservative, reactionary organization. Um, that Orban seems to identify quite strongly with. But the key point I'd like to make is that CU, as an American university, has many of our students who are from Latin America um, and also obviously from the United States. 
And we have received extraordinary support from colleagues, from activists, from NGOs and from alumna um, and alumni across the continent from Mexico all the way down to Chile and Argentina. It's been astonishing. So <clears throat> as much as uh, the situation of CEU in Hungary is clearly not the, the usual remit for NACLA, it's, um, it's hopefully of real interest to so many of our colleagues in Latin America who've supported our right to academic freedom in Hungary and in Europe more widely. The kind of consistent through line with, with the interviews I've been conducting is that pretty much everyone's in agreement that there needs to be transnational solidarity, that that is the way to counteract transnational networks of, um, of right-wing power. Um, is, is to kind of build, uh, build a left, a global left, um, that really works together and kind of, and kind of identifies these, these points. So I think, I think it's very important to recognize what's going on with you and Hungary. Um, what do the, what do the next couple of weeks look like for you guys over there at CEU? Well, the, the next step for us is given that this legislation was passed yesterday, um, after only being introduced on Monday through an expedited procedure, um, the next steps is a is a legal challenge to the legislation and a constitutional challenge to the legislation. Um, we've also heard that the Hungarian ambassador to the United States has been recalled. Uh, the State Department has condemned the, F, the the move by the Hungarian government to effectively close down Central European University. So astonishingly, Hungary um, and these actions seem to have driven a wedge between. Hungary and the United States, when ironically, it was the election of President Donald Trump, which seems to have uh, somewhat put the wind underneath the wings of Orban, who became hugely overconfident in thinking that he had this ally in the United States. So as I said, it's, um, it's very, very difficult days for us. We will still be taking students in September. Um, and we will maintain our commitment to an international program um, with a diversity of students. We have students from every country in the world. So to be able to sit in a classroom with students who range from countries, Pakistan to Tajikistan to Chile, that opportunity to share experiences is really unprecedented to my experience and knowledge in academia. Um, and we will carry on as CEU. In the future, we are committed to delivering our programs to our students, and we are committed to progressive causes. Julia, thank you so much for being on NACLA Radio today. Thank you very much to you, Helen, and thank you very much to, um, to your audience and for those who are interested in, in the work on Venezuela. And many congratulations on the Black Lives Matter edition. I think it's, uh, it's been a very, very val valuable contribution. <laughs> That was Julia Buxton, Dean of the School of Public Policy at Central European University. This has been NACLA Radio. Excerpts from the latest issue of the NACLA Report, Black Lives Matter Across the Hemisphere, are currently available to read online. You can read those excerpts and subscribe to the report at nakla.org, where you can also listen to previous episodes of NACLA Radio and read original content updated weekly. NACLA Radio is produced by me, our web editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Harocho. Yeah.